0: Today's episode of Home Row is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, which helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word, and it also inspires lifelong discipleship. The CSB is equally suited for serious study or for sharing with your neighbor hearing God's Word for the very first time. Learn more at csbible.com. Hey, everybody. Before we get into today's show, just a quick little announcement that I'm really excited about. Uh, My new book, Humble Calvinism, if I know the five points but have not love, just released. It's now available on Amazon, CBD, and wherever books are sold, so you can go and snag that, and I hope it's a a blessing to you. Um, I thought it would be a shame if I didn't let you loyal listeners know that your host of a show on writing has released his book, and maybe in future episodes I'll, I'll talk about that that process of of writing that as well. But want to let you know, humble Calvinism. If I know the five points, but have not love, is now available. Let's get on to today's show. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Home Row. I'm your host Jeff Metters, and on today's show uh, we are we're international again, but not all the way international. My my guest is. Uh, from the uk but he is in the united states right now over in atlanta and so we we're able to sync up our time zones and meet together over the air and so sam albury how are you doing brother
1: i'm doing well thank you for having me it's good to be with you
0: now i imagine that your your english breakfast isn't the same as an american breakfast or are the american eating habits and english habits are they the same when you're here
1: uh, there are certain things I can't get in the States that I miss from the UK, and I've got to say there are many things we can learn from you, but one of the things you can learn from us is the art of a decent breakfast, specifically back bacon, proper pork sausage, and syrup is not needed at any point in the process, <laughs> and baked beans. You need baked beans. Baked beans. So, yep, and if you're feeling adventurous, black pudding or blood pudding. Oh, which sounds delicious, um, and is. <laughs> so, um,
0: what did you yeah. have for breakfast this morning?
1: Um, I had a I had two bananas. I but one of them was shared with a dog, so I think I had about one and a bit bananas. That's it. So that was all I had today. Yeah. Oh my
0: goodness, I had Greek yogurt with uh, some chia seeds in it, which actually looks like little bugs when you stir it all around. It's. Quite disgusting looking. And then I had some granola with cashews and little bits of chocolate. Oh, awesome breakfast.
1: Sounds, yeah.
0: And I haven't even had any coffee yet. This is the crazy thing. At 11.15 Central Time, I haven't had one cup of coffee yet.
1: So you're kind of on this cleansing drive? Are you sort of...
0: It was, I woke up late and I do do fancy coffee where it takes, you know, four minutes to make one cup of coffee and... I'm just behind, so as soon as as soon as the podcast is over, I'm gonna brew up a cup and sit in a chair and, and keep reading some commentaries. Sounds good to me. Now, Sam, for the people out there who who don't know who you are, uh, would you mind just telling us uh, what you do for work, um, and then uh, maybe a couple of your books? We'll talk about your your newest book here in a little bit, and then I'll ask you uh, what you do for fun after that.
1: Yeah, so I work full time for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which is an apologetics ministry based here in Atlanta. Um, I'm normally in the UK, but they are a global um, organization. And my work with them really is is quite varied. So a lot of writing and speaking um, on different issues of apologetics, but specifically thinking through issues of human sexuality, things like gender identity, how we commend uh, Christ in these kinds of discussions and situations. And kind of on the side of that, I um, work a bit with the Gospel Coalition, and so yeah, I, I get to do a variety of things, and I, I really appreciate the mix.
0: And you've, you've written a handful of books, but, but before we get into those, um, what's something that, that you do for fun? Like, what, what's a hobby you got?
1: Um, well, I love hiking. Uh, when I've got time and motivation, I enjoy cooking. Um, I love just sitting down in a coffee shop with a good book spending time with friends playing board games that kind of thing I really enjoy um, so yeah I think those would be the main things
0: what's a what's a board game that you like right now that you know that the listeners should check out
1: well a recent one I've got into in the last few months is called sequence it's a, it's got a board but it's it's a card based game it doesn't take four hours so you're not making a kind of covenantal life commitment just by (laughs) starting the game with someone it's fairly straightforward and and simple to pick up um so yeah that that's a recent favorite and you can play with a a kind of quite a a range of combinations of numbers and players it's a good two-player game but it works well with other numbers as well so that that's nice and it doesn't take seven hours to set up like something like Catan.
0: oh my goodness yeah, some of these games take forever I don't, I don't think I've played Monopoly in years. It just takes way too long.
1: It does take. I mean, that is a kind of, you know, you've got to know that the rest of your week is free to start a game of Monopoly. But Monopoly Deal, if you play that, is is a fun game and, again, a relatively short game, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Oh, wow.
0: Okay, I have to look into that so one. So you can
1: get get the Monopoly experience without aging in the process.
0: <laughs> There's another game that, you know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, of Catan but it's really different. The uh, Ticket to Ride, have you played that? Yes,
1: enjoy that.
0: That's a fun game.
1: It is. Again, it it can be a bit of a long process, but um, I do enjoy that. I have a a particular strategy that I always think is cunning and never works, and yet I always try it, which is I tend to avoid the mission cards or whatever they are, the routes that you're meant to to get. and I, I just try and go for as many of the longest routes as I possibly can. To multiply the, the points and to block everybody else from getting their roots as well. So it's a kind of scorched earth yeah. policy that never it's not working. It succeeds in irritating everybody, but doesn't actually pay off in terms of <laughs> of results. So maybe yeah, I need to revise that.
0: I know. I, I've tried many I, I think I've done the same thing. I've only I do the bare minimum of the mission cards you get, the route cards. And yeah, it doesn't work. So Yeah, each
1: summer it feels like hey, this this'll really work this time. And each time it doesn't. But, but when, um,
0: it, and when it does pay off, it it will be a glorious day.
1: It will be. And it'll be one of those times where that, that will be in the museum of Sam, that moment <laughs> that the rest of history will look back on. It's, it's like when I used to play Catan and I – there was one resource that was really scarce in the whole game. I think it was iron ore. And I had three oh, or four man. in my hand. So I traded all of them for multiples of resources back. Then immediately played a Monopoly card, Ooh. got all of it back, and won the game. Lost Brutal. three or four, lost three or four <laughs> friendships in the process. But I, I kind of thought, yeah, this 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 deserves a a plaque somewhere. Oh yeah,
0: that was you were shrewd as a serpent in that moment.
1: I wasn't, and possibly as evil as well.
0: Now let me ask you. So Catan, sometimes when we would play, we would play with house rules, make up our own rules. Mm-hmm. And this this rule was hotly disputed and eventually got outlawed. That we would like we traded on future um, harvests. So I would tell the guy, "Hey, I'll trade you all your iron ore that you've got for the next ten wheats I get." And he would agree, and but everyone was like, "You can't do that! You can't do that!" I'm like, "Why not? What's wrong with trading for futures?"
1: it's what it's what your country's doing it's that's true. You a big deficit <laughs>
0: that's true that, yes yeah, so, yeah, there's, there, there's a lesson there <laughs> well yeah. also in the uh, in the sam museum is a is a bundle of books that that you've written um what was the first book that that you wrote
1: uh i wrote a book on the resurrection is it lifted um, yes quite a few years ago now um And I was looking for, there's since been a slew of very helpful books on the resurrection, and and I don't recommend mine anymore. But um, at the time, I was looking for something that for people who understood the cross, but had just never quite seen the theological significance of the resurrection, or begun to put that together with what that means for us living as Christians today. So really just trying to kind of unpack the significance of the resurrection. Lots of books tended to focus on the evidence for it. Right. And the historicity of it, but that's not the same as knowing why it matters. So, and I was beginning to notice how much the New Testament takes the reality of the resurrection and applies it to daily living. So that was what I was trying to do in that book.
0: And you've also written uh, one called Connected.
1: Right, living light of the yes, trinity I, I, th- I think that's i remember thinking at the time if i can write something vaguely useful on the trinity i will die a happy man and again there's a lot of great books since then that have, have come out but at the time i i couldn't find a book on the trinity that didn't have latin terminology in it right. and i was just trying to think what can i give someone who Doesn't really want an exhaustive or exhausting account of church history and Latin terminology, but that will just show them why this is the most beautiful thing we can know about God and how life-changing it is to know it. So that was the aim of that book. I don't think I've ever enjoyed writing a book as much as I enjoyed writing that one. It was just I was writing about my favourite thing in in the entire universe, and I was thinking if only four people end up reading this book, but it helps one of them. Then it's time well spent.
0: Wow, what do you think? Just the the subject matter of that book alone is what made it so uh, so satisfying and so enjoyable.
1: I think it was. I, I felt like I was, I was sharing something that means so much to me with with people who might not have been introduced to it yet. Um, it it really was. When I first began to really grasp what the Trinity means, it was it was like a it was like being born again again. <laughs> um, because it was such a kind of transforming experience for me as a as a believer. It was it just yeah, it it reoriented my whole Christian life around the the beauty and wonder of of who God is in himself as a God who is triune and seeing how much sense that makes of of our deepest human longings and joys and pleasures and intuitions. So yeah, I, I, I love writing and it just felt like such a privilege to spend time thinking about the Trinity and, and writing about it.
0: Yeah. And so when you, I mean, when you write about the Trinity, you're writing on a topic that is, you know, the, the person of our triune God, it, how much trepidation did you have or fear?
1: I mean, a, oh, lot- I had a, <laughs> I had a fair amount, Not, yeah. because if you. You know, if you put a, a comma or a period in the wrong place, you've you've committed a heresy yeah, somewhere. Yeah, you're so heretic. I, I, yeah. I tried to get a few much much bigger brains than mine to to read through it and check I wasn't unwittingly creating a, a new cult or something. So um, so once I kind of had the theological all clear, um, then yes, it was just a joy to write it.
0: And that's that's a good word for the listeners that you need editors not only to help you with your grammar, but also to help you from becoming a heretic. That's
1: definitely and I I don't have the kind of brain that operates at the kind of 40,000 feet level I'm I, I tend to think and write at the ground level. And so I don't trust the depth of my own theological understanding enough. Um, I, I need other people to kind of just sort of check I'm not you know, I have this experience every now and then I'll, I'll read a, a big book by D.A. Carson and he'll he'll say, Let, let's quote a few paragraphs of, of this writer and he'll quote a few paragraphs. I'll be reading those paragraphs thinking, oh, that sounds good. Yep. Oh, yep, yep, yep. And then the next thing Carson will write is, here's 17 reasons why this is terrible. Oh. theology." Like, oh, dear. Yes, yes, of course. So I need I need um, someone with a lot more theological discernment than me sometimes as a as a kind of conversation partner.
0: It's good. It's good. And You've also written a a collection of things uh, along with the Good Book Company. Just aware, mm. my new book is coming out with them on on March first. Uh, Humble Calvinism. But you've written. Uh, I love the the Four You series that they do, and and your James for you kind of lay level commentary is so practical and so great. Uh, just want to thank you for writing that. I leaned on it so much while I was and learning from it so much while I preached through James last year. It was a blast.
1: that was the second most enjoyable experience i've i've ever had writing because james was one of the first books of the bible i ever studied as a christian and so it it feels like a very old friend you know the kind of friend who you love spending time with but who will definitely challenge you and kind of prod you and poke you um it's a very challenging book to read but it, it is so practical that's one of the reasons i've i've always loved it you can't You don't really get too bogged down in, you know, obscure theology or that kind of thing. It's just, come on, guys, you know, this is this is how we live out our faith. So I really enjoyed writing that, even though the content is very challenging in terms of generally easy to grasp, but very challenging to live out.
0: Yeah, James has one of those. uh, It's got the uh, it's got a little zip to it, a little bite.
1: And absolutely it's yeah he's he he sharpened the knife before he 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 got going with that
0: yeah J- james like you know we all often hear james is like the proverbs of the new testament and he is also often like that one proverb you know the, the was the the wounds of a friend mm. like that is that's james oh
1: absolutely and you you get he beats you up um but he loves you and you're the better for it can you, so, can you imagine
0: um, yeah. what a what it would have been like to have been Jesus's brother?
1: Well, it's, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's it. It's almost impossible to imagine, isn't it?
0: Yeah, unbelievable. Like what? Yeah. Uh, and I wonder if that's why. Like, I mean, he really does James in some ways. He sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, which we were, we were talking about pre-show. Um,
1: yes, you, you can see that there is a family likeness in terms of how vivid james is writing in is compared to that of jesus um his nifty use of of very lively illustrations um but yeah some of the the, there's there are lots of parallels between the sermon on the mount and the book of james
0: And, and you've also written um two outstanding books with the good book company the why bother with church and other questions about why you need it and why it needs you uh i mean do you think people you know have a problem with church attendance? I mean, I don't, I don't perceive, I don't perceive that. <laughs> Not in Houston, obviously. Yeah, no, yeah. Our our members, they're there fifty two Sundays a year. Absolutely, they never, no one ever skips because they need a break or because they're tired or because they went fishing or you know that never happens.
1: Yeah, I think yes. I mean, it, it's um, and I feel the tendency in my own heart. It's interesting having come off the staff team of a of a church now, where. It's not my job now to be at church. It really does change things because you're thinking, I only go now because I I feel spiritually that I should be going rather than it's in the job description and I don't even think about it. But uh, it's very there's always something that's happened later on Saturday or early Sunday that you feel makes this week exceptional and why you need to stay at home or it, the, the weather's bad or whatever it might be. So I wrote the book for me as, as, as much as for anybody else. Um, and of, of course, the key to all of this is is how much the church matters to Jesus. Um, we can talk about how much we need church and <clears throat> excuse me how much we are meant to be at church, but actually if we see church as Jesus sees it, then I think that does something to our hearts that that does change our, our attitude.
0: Yeah, yeah, amen. And then the, the other booklet, I guess it's not a book, the other kind of book, but in that same series and, and size, Is God Anti-Gay? In, the, in that same Questions Christians Ask series. And I imagine that book, if, if the Trinity book had a lot of trepidations because of theological, um, like, oh, I don't want to get off the rails here, I want to make sure everything's nice and tight and, and neat. What what were some of the challenges, as you wrote, is Is God Anti-Gay?
1: there was there were several that the this was the least pleasant experience I've ever had writing. Um, not least because the issue was so it's so personal to me. it's It's been the occasion of some of my deepest shame and regrets over over the years. And writing on it felt like I was getting into a boxing ring with my fiercest enemy. And so it just felt like every time I sat down to write, it just felt like a battle. So there was that kind of personal existential struggle um, to the to the process, but as well as that, i was thinking I'm I'm trying to write, and as I'm writing, I'm thinking I'm trying to think through how multiple different audiences are going to be reading this. There's the the primary audience for me, which is the believer who's who's struggling personally with their own sexuality, and I, I want this book to be of most blessing to them. There's the kind of slightly snarky Christian who doesn't see what the fuss is about, why we even need a book on it, and it's all just sin, so shut up. There's that person. I want them to to feel a sense of understanding and compassion alongside their theological convictions. There's the, the more progressive kind of Christian who thinks, well, how can we really today say that this is wrong? And then there's the, you know assuming it gets into the hands of someone who's not a believer who might be gay, how is this going to come across to them? So and I I don't pretend for a moment to have hit all of those marks the whole way through the book, but um, just trying to be conscious of the, the, the range of sensitivities on this particular issue. And therefore having to do a little bit of who am I most concerned about being misunderstood by who am I least concerned about being misunderstood by and having? I, I hate having to to kind of go through that process. But there are there are times when you think, well, the person who most needs to get this is is X, and if Z misunderstands a bit of that, Z will get over it. Yeah. Um, so as, as clear as you try to be for everyone, you also need to recognise someone's going to get the wrong end of the stick somewhere. So I need to make sure it's the person who that's going to be least damaging for.
0: When you look back on that book um how how long did did it take you to write it do you think
1: in in terms of time not very long i mean it's a short book um although i know it's a cliche but those those do take longer to write you write a normal length book and then try and edit it down um
0: i think it was mark twain that said sorry i i wrote a long letter i didn't have time to write a short one
1: that's exactly it yes um so that there was i think it probably I tend to write in binges so it probably took me about three or four weeks of actual time but spread over several months and it took me longer to rewrite than it took me to write because I, the first attempt is just getting everything you're thinking down on, on the page and then there's the work of trying to make that coherent and then keeping it to to, to length and then Again, trying to make sure there's the right kind of nuance and qualification where you need it, and all that thing. So it took a it took a fair while. And to be completely honest with you, there were there were several points along the process where I thought, this is just never gonna. I'm never gonna get this done. Um, I'm just not gonna be able to do it. Um, I've got this far. I I can't. You know, I just can't ever get get there. So the fact that it ever got published. Um, is something I'm I'm very thankful for and, and don't take for granted, and the fact that it the Lord seems to have used it yeah. is even more to me ludicrous um, because I I just remember sitting there thinking, when well, I got the first round of feedback from the editor, I just thought I I'm just not going to be able to do this. I I had a go, I had a try, but this is never going to work. Mm-hmm. So um, so yeah, very thankful for the fact that it ever saw the light of day.
0: Oh yeah. And we, we are in debt to you for such a helpful and honest and biblical, biblical book too. And, and now your next one, uh, that just came out with crossway. Um, by the time this episode airs, the book will be out. Um, you can go and get it on Amazon or at your local store, seven myths about singleness. And so we'll, we'll talk about that in a, in a second, but before we, before we do, I always love to ask, uh, Sam, how did you become a writer?
1: Um, yeah, it's one of those things where I, I'd never sort of imagined that I would become one. It's not like I've been, you know, writing nonstop since I was three. And this has always been what I've wanted to do. Um, was never something I particularly felt any kind of calling to or burden to be doing for most of my life. Um, but I had some time between finishing one job at one church and then starting the next job at another church. Um, I wanted to give myself a very long transition. I don't like change. So I thought if I give myself a mini sabbatical in between saying all the goodbyes to one church and then saying all the hellos to the next church, I thought that would just help me emotionally to to go through that transition. Um, And I thought I don't want two months of just taking time off and not doing anything, I thought it'd be good for me to have a project. And I'd been thinking a lot about The Resurrection, so I thought, well, let's just try writing this up. And for my own sake, and if, if at the end of the process someone wants to publish it, that's that's an added bonus. And I hadn't talked to any publishers or anything like that. I just thought, I'm going to start writing, and if I enjoy it, I'll carry on. If I don't, I won't, and I don't have to. So it began as a kind of personal project of trying to to get down some thoughts on on a particular issue and when i started doing that without the pressure of anyone having any expectations of that and with nothing else to do for a few weeks i really enjoyed it and i realized i wasn't writing essays at university or something that was going to be graded i was writing something i that i was writing out of pleasure Mm out of a out of a joy in in the content and a desire to to express that and and maybe even to share it with somebody else, so I saw it it was a just di- just a different kind of writing to me because previously you know you you write lots of papers and essays um and they're you know that's a very different thing to writing something because you're wanting to talk to someone about it and to to share it with them yeah so i had I had various characters in my church family in mind as I was writing, thinking what do I want them to know about what I'm learning about the the resurrection?
0: Yeah, I think that's so helpful as writers that we write with people in mind. And when I, especially when I'm writing sermons or if I'm writing a, a blog post, an article or working on a book chapter, there are people either in my church or in my life that I'm thinking about, man, this is what I want. I would tell them if they were sitting here right now, um, is that is that kind of what you're saying?
1: It is, and and not least because I'm I'm thinking. Uh, a couple of times I've written these books because I I've wanted to recommend something to someone to read and it hasn't existed. So I thought, well, I'll i see if I can write it. So I'm writing because I've I've seen a need within the congregation for some accessible ground level literature on a particular area of the Christian life or or Christian theology. So. I've been writing with my congregation in mind. And not least, I tend to write with a non-reader in mind. Um, I I want to to try and catch the person who might read a a trashy novel on vacation, but who typically doesn't sit down with a book unless they have to. Mm. And if I can in any way, you know, there are so many unfinished Christian books on our shelves up and down the land. I don't want to write a, a book that someone's never going to finish reading. So I think if I can write a book on whatever the topic is that someone might enjoy reading and certainly finish reading, I'll be really happy.
0: Now, when you think back on the, your writing process, um, maybe it's changed over the years or your habits, obviously, with, with how you wrote Is God Anti-Gay? Had, had a different, you know, it's a shorter book. Now, as, with your new book, Seven Myths About Singleness, uh, why, I guess we'll talk about why you wrote this book, but before that. How did you write this book? Um, what did your writing habits look like? I know the listeners and always love to talk about. Are you a morning writer? Are you, a, you mentioned a binge writer. Do you stay up late? Do you, you know, on the weekends you're just going to knock out, you know, five thousand words? What is what's your writing process like?
1: Generally, so when I when I talk about binge writing, what I mean is ideally, I need to have maybe a few days where i can really get some time thinking on it it takes me a while to get into it it takes me a while to get my head into the writing process and so i'm not someone who can just write for 30 minutes every day and then just gradually you finish a book i'm someone who needs to take hey here's two or three days where i think i can get half a day each day writing Um, so i need that kind of condensed focused time Um, I typically don't write at home. I, I normally go and stay with a, a friend somewhere um, just because I I, I find home is, is so familiar and there's too many distractions, too many other things that I feel are, are warranting my attention. So to stay with someone else and try to take everything else off my plate for a few days just to focus on this is good. It's nice to have the space and peace and quiet, but but not to be for me. I I don't want complete solitude. It's nice to have other human Mm. beings in the vicinity and people to enjoy meals with in between Mm. uh, blocks of writing and and have a quick break if I need to. So I've got some very dear friends who live up in in Durham in the northeast of England, and they're wonderful folks to, to visit on any occasion, but it's a particularly great place to write because they've, They've got space in the home where you don't feel like you're taking up room that someone else is going to be needing. And they've got woods that you can just step out, step out of the house and go for a walk in the woods, take one of the take take a dog with you. And if I just need to clear my head or I can't seem to get a thought clarified or expressed sufficiently well, just a bit of grab a hound and just go for a fifteen minute walk through the woods, often is all I need, then to come back and then have another crack at it. um so that really helps me having that kind of space to be able to write and to try and write in a in a concentrated sort of way so that that's how seven myths about singleness happened it began up there i was actually in the early process of writing a, a book on something else entirely which i'm still planning to come back to but i was feeling i was in a rut i'd just been teaching on singleness it was all very fresh in my mind i was convinced we needed something on singleness. So I thought I'm just gonna start writing on this and see what happens. I was staying with them for a few days over Easter and just thought I'll I'll just start and see how I, I get on. And I I managed to map out what the book would look like and, and make a pretty good start at it. And then once it was started, it was then easy to continue it, even if I didn't always have those concentrated cluster of days sometimes because I I travel a lot with my work sometimes when I'm on the road that's a really easy time to write sometimes it's it's completely hopeless um but sometimes I'll I'll be able to get a a good amount of writing done on a flight or in a hotel lobby um or in a coffee shop in between other things yeah um but it depends I can't guarantee that because I never quite know when I'm traveling what else is going to be occupying my mind and and needing attention but I've I've written virtually nothing that's been published in my own home
0: yeah that's amazing so you um, i mean maybe, you, yeah you get out I, of town
1: yeah i tend and i can't obviously being single that's that's relatively easy um and i think it may am i i may have pushed myself into that pattern now where because i haven't written from home i now have got myself into the stage where oh i can't now because i, I never do right right um the old article here and there yes but yeah that's what i was going to ask when you
0: yeah when you have to you know you're posting something at the gospel coalition do you just go to a local coffee shop or are you just knock it out from home what do you do with that
1: it depends where i am uh wherever i am i'll i'll try and have a crack at it some some of those articles happen as a result of of jet lag uh so i'm awake at four o'clock in the morning and i'm thinking nothing (laughs) else to do i'm going to I know there's an article I need to write. I'll I'll do that now. Um, uh, some of those are written in airport lounges where my flight's been delayed for a couple of hours. So I'm thinking, okay, I'll just sit and do some writing for a bit. The nice thing about articles is they are they're so contained. Um, I can kind of get into it and get it done normally in one in one sitting. Whereas with the, with a book, it takes me again. It's a longer journey to to be on and a longer process to get into.
0: And like, Sam, what I love about your your books and your writing, you, you write timely, um, practical, helpful, very James, Book of James-ish type, you know, uh, projects. And when you think about, and so not only do you do those things also, but you also write very well, um, great prose, it's very crisp and uh, to the point. And so when you think about your writing style and, and other people that you read, what do you think makes for good writing?
1: I think it, it's always going to be a combination of things. Um, I think one of the things that's helped me is having been in pastoral ministry for many years now, I've just as I've learned, I hope, um, had a preach in a way that the people I'm speaking to are going to be able to understand and follow and engage with what i'm saying the same is true of writing i feel like i know who i'm writing for and how to write for that kind of audience so that helps i've got a i've got a particular audience in mind as i as i write um and i think the, the other thing for me is I mentioned this earlier with, with the years God Anti-Gay book, but it, it often takes me as long to rewrite something as it does to write it. So my first draft of anything is always massively overwritten. Mm. Uh, it's normally um, probably 50% longer wow. than the final product product needs to be. Um, that's the same with my sermons. The first draft of my sermon is always um, 50% longer than the, the length of time i I should be speaking for and almost always i can get it down to the right length without missing without losing any content it's just that i'm, I'm over explaining things i'm over writing things so I, it takes me at least one draft just to work out what it is i'm trying to say but it takes me a lot longer to then work out the best way of saying it but even though that process can sometimes take sometimes take longer than the actual writing for me, it's psychologically easier to be editing something that already exists than to be writing something that doesn't. So I'm working on a book at the moment where I've done the first draft and it is terrible. Um, (laughs) it doesn't flow. It's, it's repetitive. There are some trains of thought that kind of suddenly come to an abrupt halt, uh, things that I've under explained things that I've over And so it's it's terrible. My editor wanted to see it. So I said, OK, but I kind of feel like you're seeing me naked for the first time. So I don't normally send anyone a first draft. Um, And although I know it's going to take a lot of hours to work on that dozens and dozens of hours, it feels like, hey, at least I've done a draft. I've got something down and now it's refining, um, even if it's going to take a a very long time. For me, psychologically, that seems to make a difference. But um, there, there's, there's good advice that I've come across from a number of writers, which is write a, just write an awful first draft. And I think sometimes we we imagine the writers that we most admire simply wrote perfection yeah. <laughs> the moment they started writing. And, and for most of us, that is not the case. It, but actually, it takes a lot of rewriting, a lot of editing, a lot of other pairs of eyes as well coming in on this to help us write something that's even, even to a mediocre standard.
0: Now, what are, what are some of those writers that you look at and, and and that you admire and, you know, that we wrongly think, Oh yeah, their, their keyboard just oozes gold.
1: Well, one of them, I think probably they did just ooze gold. And that is, I've always loved C.S. Lewis. I know that's a a kind of cliche. I, I, if you look at draw, you know, early manuscripts of some of his books, there are corrections there, but not a huge amount. So he clearly had an exceptional mind that could produce excellent prose on what seems to be a first take. Um, but I think, yeah, every every writer I have ever spoken to and editors will always confirm this, that, you know, everyone writes a rubbish first draft. Um, and it, it then just takes a lot of work trying to get it in a, in a good way, just as for most of us, we don't write at first attempt a, a, a sermon that's the, that's ready to be preached. Um, so I, I enjoy reading Lewis. There's a, a lot of, um, contemporary Christian writers. I, I very yeah. much enjoy reading people like Jared Wilson. Um, Ray yeah, he's a,
0: yeah, Jared's okay. He's all right.
1: He's got some potential, I think. Yeah, yeah um, he'll be
0: okay. I think, he, he I, I think I've think mentioned him on every episode.
1: I think he could do with writing a bit more. He's obviously very slow um, yeah. and only produces three books a year or something. That's clearly... He's slacking. Yeah, someone needs to crack the whip there. Um, <laughs> I John Stott was someone who I read a huge amount of um, as a young believer. Very, very formative for me. Again, someone who who just wrote with such wonderful clarity particularly his expositions his his books in the bible speaks today series yeah really taught me how to how to exegete and how to handle scripture uh, more than anything else did so those are he's a writer who's been particularly um formative for me and there'll be many others as well that would be the, the usual sorts of names that people talk about but um
0: yeah, and you mentioned I, you mentioned Ray Ortland as well. Yeah, I love his.
1: Yeah, I've read been reading his books since very early in my Christian life, and I can't remember how I first came across his writing. But once I came across it, I always kept an eye out for it. So when I whenever I saw that he had a new book out, that would be someone who. There are certain authors where even before you know what the title of the book is, you've pre-ordered it because right. it's there, and it, it could be on, you know, trends in Iranian shepherd techniques but it's still <laughs> going to be enjoyable and, and fun to read
0: yeah I, I think the first thing i read by ray was actually um the foreword he wrote to gospel wakefulness from jared hmm. and i remember reading that and thinking whoa that was good
1: well i remember it. the first book i read of his was and under its old title was whoredom oh yeah and even the cover was bright red it was great fun i, I was commuting on tr- by train at the time and it's a great thing to read on a train because you always had a seat an empty seat next to you um no one sits next to a guy who's ride, reading a book like that <laughs> yeah you got to hide it,
0: that behind another book or something yeah. <laughs> i think uh, now the new titles god's unfaithful wife i think that's what they it is yeah
1: yeah, yeah they, they um
0: much more uh public friendly reading
1: it is but But the whole point of that that theme in the scripture is it it is meant to be unsettling and it is it is a graphic way of speaking and thinking. So it's kind of a shame in a way because it's meant to be shocking that that wasn't Ray being, um, you know, crass or anything that it is, you know. So but anyway, his his writing, I've I've always appreciated and and folks like John Piper as well, um, who just helped me to. Think very, very theologically about things that I hadn't necessarily thought theologically about, or even theocentrically. To think theocentrically about so much in the Christian life, um so Piper more than anyone else taught me the gospel is not about me, and you know we, I need to hear that every day of the week and twice on Sundays. So, a lot of writers who've who've influenced me. Some writers I marvel at at how much they produce. and I, I wish i had that kind of capacity um uh it takes me a long time it, it doesn't take me long once i'm in the groove and once i'm doing it it just seems to take me a long to get to that it takes me a long time to get to that point
0: yeah i feel the same i, I always you know marvel at jared his abilities to churn things out and um these guys that can just and not only are they you know they're not just putting words out but putting really good words out and really helpful content I'm like I just don't have that much good stuff to say
1: yeah yeah it takes me six months to have one thought yeah um, another six months to write it down so um but no it's it's a privilege to be able to do this uh it's not something I ever imagined would be a thing I would end up doing but but I I, I certainly I really enjoy it it helps me enormously it's that old adage of I don't know what I think about something until I've tried to write on it right. and clears my thinking up so much to try and put things into, into prose. So if it's a bonus to other people, if it helps other people, that's a, that's a bonus. But uh, most of this is stuff that just as with preaching, I'm I'm preaching what I, the sermon I know I need to hear on Sunday morning. And if other people get helped too, in a kind of collateral damage kind of way, then that's, that's great.
0: Yeah. So when you think about, you know, as, as you were writing, you know, learning as you write, what, what did you learn about writing the seven myths about singleness?
1: Well, the great thing about writing a book is you get to go much deeper into an issue. I've done a number of talks on singleness. I think that the longest I'd ever spoken on singleness was for an hour. And obviously with the book, you are having someone's attention for significantly longer than that. So it just gave me a chance to really think more clearly, more deeply, look more closely at certain scriptures that previously I would be you know, referencing to in passing, I'd actually have time to stop at and and spend time with. So, it it just deepened a lot of my my own thinking and, and understanding in the whole process. Um, so that that for me is one of the, the blessings of, of of writing a book, is that you can, even if not everything ends up in the final book, in the research process you can explore every kind of rabbit hole and um see where it goes and there are so many kind of biblical insights you pick up along the way that may not be relevant to the book but which are just great in and of themselves anyway so yes it was it was a good experience for me to write it again if it helps others that's great as well but it, it did me a lot of good
0: I guess you know what are some of your hopes. Obviously, there's you know seven myths you tackle in the book, and I won't won't go over them all because we want people to buy the book and and go through it. But I guess you know what what were some of your hopes for for the book?
1: Um, I I have several, um, and not the least of which is I really do want to see church culture changing on this issue. Um, I think so much of our thinking around marriage and singleness is basically um, the thinking of our secular culture very lightly christianized Um, and so i i do want us to think through singleness and marriage in the light of the gospel and with more biblical insight and that will affect and needs to affect the way that we do church because at the moment our churches are not places where by and large it is Viable, pleasurable, easy, plausible to be single um, long term. So I, I do want to change the church's attitude. So I was always my my burden from the moment I started writing this was this is a book for the church to read. There are plenty of books by single people for single people. I wanted this to be a book for the church as a whole to be reading, so that the church as a whole can better understand and honor singleness. Um, The original impetus came from the publisher, actually. They asked me if I would be willing to write something on singleness. And they said at the time, we want someone who is both single, but who was also a pastor and therefore understands the experience of a wider range of people than just, you know, their own personal narrative. So that really kind of became my burden for this to, to, to shape the church I'm conscious, too, that in doing that, we are going to have a much wider impact. Um, as I mentioned, I work for, for Ravi Zacharias, that the ministry is generally focused on the most pressing and obvious issues of apologetics. And singleness doesn't feel like that, but I think it is, because if we're not getting singleness right in our churches, then we're going to make it harder for ourselves to commend the Bible's teaching on on things like sexual ethics and gender identity and all those sorts of things. So this does matter for our public witness. Um, so I hope if we if we're strengthened in our biblical understanding on singleness and that informs how we then do church, that all of that will then be reinforcing the goodness of the truths that we're seeking to share with, with culture on some issues that are very, very contested and very sensitive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. You know, when I was flipping through um, the, some of the stuff I got from your book from Crossway and looking through it, um, I was thinking just about the ways that writers and preachers like myself and just the way that we can talk about singleness um, in the church and that we need that we need some corrections. Like I'm sure you've heard this, that I remember saying this, you know, being, you know, when I first got married and telling, you know, stories about being married, et cetera. And you go, Man, I, you know, I thought it was sinful until I got married. And Mm. like now it just shows me how how sinful I am and shows me how much I need to grow and all that kind of stuff. Which is true. But kind of what's tucked into there is a message to single people. Well, you won't reach this level of maturity until you have this kind of relationship that really shows you how sinful you are. That now since I'm married, now I have this insights into my heart. I didn't have before. Um, and I was sharing that with a single brother at our church and he said, yeah, absolutely. He's like, I felt that way when I heard people say that, like, well, golly, I guess I won't, you know, realize how sinful I am <laughs> and in these kinds of ways. And then when people have kids, they say stuff like that. Like, Oh, I thought I was, you know, so selfish until I had kids. To be like, well, then, so what about the people that don't have kids? Can they not grow into this, you know, out of that selfishness? I think there's all kind of unintentional ways that we can speak um, where we don't intend to, you know, cause harm or, or to belittle, um, but that single Christians... Um, can grow in massive ways of godliness and maturity and that it's not second rate it's it's not um, a lesser Christian experience at all to, to be single
1: and I think that those observations about marriage and parenthood are very helpful I mean I remember the first time I heard a pastor say being married made him realize just how deep his sin was that just helped me to think about marriage in a way I hadn't thought about it before. I'd always had this kind of slightly idealized, naive view of marriage. And so it was sobering to hear him say that. But I think I've heard other people phrase it in a less helpful way along the lines of you won't like, you know, you won't know you're a real sinner until you're married. Right, right. Because that's them basically saying, as you say, it's, it's implying there's a form of kind of spiritual graduation that it, it kind of happens when you, when you get married or have kids. I remember somebody having their first child and he said, I feel like I've really become a man now. Mm. And I remember thinking fatherhood is a, is an, an amazing aspect of being a man and it, it, it should sort of help us to think very deeply about that. But it, saying it in that way was really stupid. Yeah. It was really stupid. Um because you know, I had a number of very dear friends at the time who were struggling with issues like fertility and to tie your masculinity or manhood to being able to produce a child is just very crass and shallow right so there, there are good points to make in all of these things that I think can just be can still be made, but in a way that still edifies everyone, um, even if it's just saying, hey, having a kid is just again it's reinforced just how selfish i am and if you if you're putting that in a in a in a sermon all it takes is one more sentence like anytime we we begin to wrap our lives around the needs and um desires of of other people we we realize how selfish we are whether that's um a roommate whether it's you know you know a, a parent that you're caring for or whatever it is it so that there's always a wider principle that this is one application of that can still be applied in other ways.
0: That's good. That's really, really helpful. Good for teachers and, and for writers, too. If you're writing a blog post about parenting or about uh, marriage, that we can easily make those kinds of comments. and But with our words, especially, um, we're able to to temper and to measure and to think through the implications of what we're saying. And I think that's why you're such a helpful voice, I'm a very thoughtful writer, um, that you're not very uh, hasty, and maybe that's the English part of you as well. Or Americans are always, you know, we're flying off the handle all the time.
1: Well, this is again, this is the advantage of, of redrafting. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes there's something you write that's a bit intemperate that needs to be calmed down. There's there's one part in this book where I, I quite, I, I significantly disagree with a very prominent much respected and deservedly so christian pastor elder statesman and i remember writing about this particular area where i was wanting to take issue with this this particular gentleman and i remember then sending it to the editor and saying have i got the tone right am i venting my spleen or am i making a a point that's worth making and you know sleep on it a few times take a few deep breaths and think is, is this still significant enough to warrant you know, responding to and, and critiquing in this kind of way. So but I know that there are times when I've 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 written something and I thought, no, I really need to that I'm writing that to get it off my chest mm. rather than to actually help anybody else. And you know, there's been a few tweets I've had to delete over the years for the same yeah, reason. Yeah. Um so yeah, that that's that's always a danger with with any kind of writing, particularly when we're writing about things that we really care about. Um but, you know feelings do run very high at times.
0: That's right. You know, Sam, if there's uh, one writing book, let's say, you know, at the Gospel Coalition Conference and someone, Sam, they tell you, I just appreciate your writing so much and I want to write like you. What what should I read? Is there a writing book I sh- you'd recommend?
1: There, there are a few that I've I found very helpful. Um, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott helped me because she was the one who introduced me to the concept of of writing really, terrible first draft. That's right. She uses slightly more well, colorful language, yeah, I think, to to gritty. convey that.
0: yeah
1: um, but that that was quite liberating to to read that. I found Doug Wilson's book, wordsmithy also very stimulating, challenging, um very helpful in in thinking about writing um i've I've got but I haven't yet read, but I'm told it's excellent Stephen King's book on oh, writing, yeah, absolutely um, which is I got that for christmas so
0: i've I've never read any other Stephen King book
1: but that one. <laughs> I've not read any of his novels, but yeah. i I keep people keep pointing to that as a particularly good book on writing, and I think the other thing is just to keep just to be a good reader is is one of the key things for being a good writer. Um, you're not going to write well if you never read well, so and I know it sounds kind of churlish and, and hackneyed to say it, but if someone says, I want to write like you do, um, God has given each of us our own voice, our own personality, our own temperament, our own particular combination of gifting and, and everything else. So I want people to write like them, not like anybody else. It's good to have someone who's writing you admire and where there are are things worthy of, of emulating? Whether it's the kind of the, the proportionality and clarity of a John Stott, whether it's the that kind of take you by the lapels and shake you around arrestingness of a of a John Piper, whether it's the I'm giving your soul the most extraordinary hug type effect of a, of a Ray Altland. Um God wants every person to write as the person that they are, um, just as every preacher needs to find their own voice. Even if there's good examples to, to follow, um, we don't need another John Piper. Uh, we don't need another Billy Graham. We need people to be faithful as, as the men and women that God has made them to be.
0: Amen. Well said. And we'll end. We'll end with that. Beautiful. That was a beautiful little little snippet. Uh, for us sam thank you well where 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 can people follow you on on social media where where would you point people
1: um probably twitter is the best thing um at sam Albury on twitter um i'm on facebook but i i tend to look at it rather than posting on it um so probably twitter is the best best place and um i think crossway have put together a website for me com as well Or that it feels like i'm massacring a bit of my englishness <laughs> to have a website with which is my name, com. so um i may i may end up deleting the whole thing after perfect anyway yeah. so yeah but but twitter's the best thing us or the gospel coalition tend to be the places where i i tend to do a lot of my writing
0: and i'll put links to to sam's website and his twitter and his books on amazon and writings at the gospel coalition that'll all be in the show notes so all you got to do if you're using the uh, apple podcast app you just keep swiping up there to the bottom of this episode and you'll see all the links here uh books that we mentioned sam's writings um and a link to go buy his new book seven myths about singleness uh thanks for joining the show uh sam thanks so much for for coming on today
1: Oh it's such a pleasure thanks for I'm thankful for your ministry